Yes, okay, so let me give a brief introduction to the video. The video basically covers the last two years of ministry. We've been in Argentina since 2005. By 2008, we were already moving into the city of Pilar to begin a church in an area that we had not been able to identify, a like-minded uh, uh, church. And that area is a city of about 300,000. We like to call it our little town because the greater Buenos Aires area is a city of 14 million. So we live in the little itty bitty town of Pilar with 300,000 people. And so we have been there since 2008. The Lord has graciously allowed us to see a church rise up uh, from zero to now a thriving uh, ministry. We thank the Lord that he has provided national leadership. There are now three uh, deacons in the church. We also have a man who is preparing to enter the ministry. We're praying that he might be the future pastor of the work in Argentina, and that is definitely a prayer request. So what we're going to really show you is a ministry shift, a cultural shift in the church in Argentina that has really encouraged our hearts that the future of this church is going to be full, that it's not going to be a ministry that's going to just uh, maintain and plateau and then eventually decline. Our goal is that this church would catch a vision that would allow them to not only grow, but to reproduce themselves in the future. I believe every missionary goes to the field with that goal. I believe most of us, myself included, go to the mission field underprepared for that task. But God is gracious and he has met us in the way and he has helped us through this process. And so we just want to give a brief testimony, this is only about six minutes long, about six and a half minutes, about what God has done in Argentina in the last couple of years. Then we're going to go to the text of the Bible, and if we can, we're going to leave you a couple of minutes at the end to ask questions that relate to the passage that we're going to see as it is basically the philosophy of ministry that we are using in order to plant churches in Argentina. So without any further ado, we'll go to the video, and then... We'll go to Acts chapter 11 if you want to prepare. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Make disciples. That is Jesus' great commission to all believers. But how does he want us to fulfill that commission? What does disciple making look like in my daily life? Is disciple making different in Argentina than other parts of the world? In the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. During 2017, our church went through a process of rethinking our 21st century filtered ideas of what church is and how disciple making should be carried out to look more like the first century New Testament church. Our primary ministry focus became the implementation of a disciple making culture in the church in Pilar. We, as a church family, began to shepherd one another in one-on-one -on -one mentoring, discipling, word-centered relationships. By July of 2017, we had about 60 believers mentoring other believers. Some were church members and some were not. During all of 2017, God was strengthening our church family 
in order to make the necessary preparations to welcome new believers. Once we set up the nursery, so to speak, to prepare for new spiritual births, we continued our disciple-making efforts by focusing on personal evangelism. We went through an in-depth Bible study on personal evangelism, which teaches a God-centered theology of soul winning, as well as three different methods for use in various evangelistic scenarios. Our desire is that this would not be just another program, but a way of life for every single church member, starting with the pastor. Our prayer is that God would bring in the exact number of baby Christians for the new nursery that he believes we can handle in his strength. One of the biggest changes we've made has been in our personal lifestyle. We have become more intentional in our relationships with our unsaved neighbors, coworkers, and relatives. Our goal is to be salt and light by building long-lasting friendships with those in our sphere of influence for the purpose of evangelism. Shortly after I began a Foundations Bible study at the home of Marta and Rosa, they invited a neighbor, they see, to join us. We shared the gospel with her as we studied the Bible. She then decided she wanted to attend church too, and she eventually trusted Christ in her home. Since Marta and Rosa were already working through the Foundations Bible study, they felt better equipped to begin discipling Daisy. I had always been taught that evangelism should be aggressive, confronting the unsaved person with the reality of hell and their sin. However, through the personal evangelism study, I have learned other, more methodical approaches in sharing the gospel. When Carlos asked me to study the Bible with his brother and his wife, Raul and Norma, we used the exchange Bible study. They had so many questions, so we went slowly through each lesson. By the third lesson, they told me they were both ready to trust Christ. So that's what they did that very night. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Our church has a burden to give to others since God has blessed us and has allowed us to help and encourage other churches in the areas of construction projects, counseling, and encouraging other area pastors in disciple making, assisting to find a replacement pastor, equipping a new church plant for items they will need to start out, and teaching and preaching on disciple making in leadership conferences in Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil, and Mexico. The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. As we look toward the future, we eagerly anticipate how God will work in and through this church plant to reach our city, our province, our country, and beyond to the uttermost parts of the world with the gospel. We truly have the expectation that this church is on the right path to becoming a disciple-making church for generations to come. We are rigorously training a potential pastor for this church plant. As soon as he and the church are ready, we will transition from the pastorate in this church plant in order to plant another church in the area surrounding Pilar. The country of Argentina needs 740 more churches 
in order to have one church for every 50,000 inhabitants. The city of Pilar needs six more churches in order to just have one church for every 50,000 inhabitants. There is still much work to do in this city. We are praying that God would send us co-workers to help us with the next church plant. Would you join us in prayer for more laborers? Thank you for praying for the Greenwood family. All right, that's a really, really brief overview of some of the things that God has been doing in Pilar. And we, once again, just want to thank you for your prayers and the part that you've had in that through your financial giving, but also accompanying us. Uh, many of you don't know who we are. Some of you do. Who knew us before we got here this morning? How about that? Okay, good. That's awesome. It's good to see those hands. But I see an awful lot of hands that weren't raised, and I just want you to know, we thank you as a church. You don't know us personally, but yet you've made a commitment to us for all of these years, and we want you to know, we can stand before you tonight and say that that investment is already paying dividends. And those dividends, we believe, are going to be eternal. Isn't it exciting to think that there are folks now in Argentina who are going to stand shoulder to shoulder with you and praise the God of heaven and earth for all eternity for his honor and glory? That just thrills my heart to be a part of that. And so as we're going from church to church, I just want to encourage young people to consider missions. Consider giving your life to serve on the foreign mission field. Yes, you need to begin right here to win souls. He that wins souls is wise. And mission starts right here at home in our Jerusalem. But also to consider, hey, maybe the Lord would use me even in the uh, areas beyond my Jerusalem, beyond Judea, to the uttermost parts of the earth. If you're in Acts chapter 11, I'd ask you to stand to your feet in respect for the reading of God's word. We're going to start in verse 19. We're going to go to verse 26 this evening. Acts 11, 19 through 26. The Bible says this, now, they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost, and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we bow before you tonight with great expectation that you're going to work in our lives. It is for that reason that we have come to gather at church, knowing full well that we need the fellowship of the believers. We need to bear one another's burdens. Some of us have come with burdens that are so great that we don't believe anyone could bear them. And we don't know if you would be willing to help us. But Lord, we recognize that as we come to know you more and more each day, that that fear fades away. And we begin to confidently 
expect you to work in great ways. And we began to put aside our superstitious beliefs about who you are and that you're going to somehow magically make all things better. And we began to recognize that you are going to work through the means at our disposal and through our brothers and sisters in Christ to meet the needs that we all are facing. And that we are going to see such a surplus of your grace in our lives that we're going to have an abundance with which to help others also. I pray that that would be the case here at Fairview Baptist Church. Thank you for their faithfulness in supporting us all these years. And I pray, Lord, as they are considering where the next step for this church will be, that you would give wisdom to not only the pastoral staff, but you would prepare the hearts of these saints, that they would be encouraged that disciple-making is not something that occurs only in distant lands, and it is not something that only the pastoral staff is to be involved in. It is rather the task of every believer. So I pray that you would encourage us through your word tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. A disciple-making culture can influence the world for good. But what is a disciple-making culture? When I say disciple-making culture, I'm talking about something that moves us, something that shapes and molds us. The culture around us, the Hollywood culture, desires to mold us to be more godless. I don't know if you've recognized that, but they really have an agenda. They want you to watch their programs that deify man, and that laugh at God, that glorify sin and belittle those that would live a pious life. Now, if that's the culture that is around us and shaping us, what type of culture should the church be? What kind of influence should we have? We all know the scripture says that we're to be salt and light, but what does that look like? What is that really going to be and mean for me? Because at the end of the day, it is very easy for us to identify problems. Sometimes we're very good at criticizing. We'll, we'll call that identifying problems. Oh man, they should do this. Oh man, they should do that. Oh man, this person is not doing this and they're not doing that. Okay, so you identified the problem, but that's only half the battle. Now we need a solution. And do you know that many times... And I myself am guilty of this. That in Argentina, I would stand at the pulpit and say, you just need to obey God. Now, is there anything wrong with saying that we need to obey God? Absolutely not. We're supposed to obey God. You need to do right till the stars fall. Okay, is there anything wrong with saying that? Nope, not at all. Except for one little thing. And that is, unless there is a culture of disciple making, no one knows how to do that. That is equivalent to telling somebody to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Some of you may actually have had bootstraps at some point. Am I right? No? Yeah? You actually know what that phrase means. This is a little bit easier to understand. It would be equivalent to taking a newborn baby and laying them down in their crib and surrounding them with resources. Here's a baby bottle. Here's a bottle of water. Here's a can of formula, here are baby wipes, here are diapers, and then telling the baby, you help yourself to whatever you need. And then getting mad at the baby when it cries because it can't get its needs met. 
We do that to newborn Christians all the time. Take your Bible and read it. What's wrong with you? Just read your Bible. I can't. Read your Bible. And until we can build a culture of disciple making where we recognize the New Testament pattern for how we are to model Christianity for someone else and we are to lead others as if they were babes into early childhood development, into their preteen and teen years, and to adulthood, we are going to continue to see a lot of folks who with that uh, this parable of the seed, it looks like the seed is sprung up and then it's snatched away. It looks like it's growing and then the weeds come in and take over. And we go, where is the true, where are those true believers? And when we don't see the growth that we expect because we are told in Scripture that this is going to be a profitable enterprise, this idea of winning souls and building God's church, we begin to make excuses. And what do the excuses sound like? Well, there just aren't, you know, this is, these are tough times. People aren't getting saved like they used to. We must be living in the last days. Tell that to the people in the book of Judges. They lived 300 years in horrible, no good, very bad times. And then God brought King David and King Solomon and brought very good years. The United States is 242 years old. I was born in 1976. Makes that easy. What if the best years of ministry of the local church in the United States are yet before us? Heard that lately? I hope you've heard something like that, and yet we go, wait a minute, no, 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 no. The best is far behind us. No. Until Christ comes back, we are to be busy. And so what are we doing? We are excusing our unbelief and our lack of enthusiasm, our lack of obedience. And what are we doing? We're doing like uh, some of these companies around here. They build... Uh, Storm shelters? And what are we doing? We're rushing inside of our spiritual storm shelter saying, Oh Lord, even so, come quickly. May he find us watching and working when he comes back. But how does that happen? How can we then stem the flow of this doldrums of this monotony of Christianity that has left us dull of hearing in many cases? How do we stem the tide? I propose tonight that that is done with a culture of disciple making in the local church where we get back to living like Christ before someone else. Did Jesus come in the flesh, yes or no? Amen? Jesus came in the flesh. Have you ever asked yourself why? Because at the end of the day, there are many... variety of reasons that we could give. Oh, well, he came so that he could shed his blood on the cross. These are all correct answers, by the way. But did you know that he could have saved us without coming in the flesh? He could have just appeared on the scene. He could have died on the cross. And then he could have ascended back to heaven. But he chose to live amongst his followers. And because he lived amongst his followers, they were able to say, 
I have seen with my eyes how my master is and how he lives, and now I can faithfully copy his example, and I can share that example with successive generations. At some point in the history of our country, many churches lost sight of the fact that our generation, every successive generation, is going to have to rise up and stake the exact same claims as the preceding generation and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Instead of riding the coattails of previous generations and their successes. But why do we do that? Because of our inherent laziness. So what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to return to a biblical model. I am not proposing any sort of compromise to you tonight. I am saying that I believe that the scripture holds the key. And if we could understand how to apply that key to our lives, we would solve a lot of the problems in our local church of why is it that we seem to be a family, but a really, really dysfunctional family that really, really doesn't know each other very well. Some of you love your unsaved family members more than you love your church family. And we know that because you're willing to spend time with them and miss opportunities to be with this family. You say, wait a minute, I'm trying to win them to the Lord. Amen, praise the Lord. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Blood, sicker, and water. Yes, and the blood of Jesus Christ has united us. So how do we get to that place? Because in Argentina, our goal is to get to that place where the church is united. And we are no longer stonemasons and electricians and those that are businessmen, but rather we are disciples of Jesus Christ that make disciples of Jesus Christ. And in order to provide for my family, I just happen to lay brick. I just happen to run electrical wires. I just happen to be a businessman. Every church is going to have to get to that position or else this idea of a culture of disciple making isn't going to work. So what lessons can we derive from this text in, about this idea of implementing a culture of disciple making? There is so much information here that we could spend hours, and we are not going to do that. I promise you right now, okay? And we're not going to do that. So let's just look over some of these introductory ideas, kind of giving ourselves a little bit of foundation. We're in verse 19 here of Acts chapter 11. And it says, now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen. This is picking up a narration that ended in Acts chapter 7, verses 58, 59, and then Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Okay? So if you want to turn there real quick with me so that we can see these texts, this is going to be really helpful so that we can kind of get a little refresher to see what's been going on that they're now picking back up at this narration. There's a lot that's happened in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9. Peter has been used to bring the gospel to the Samaritans. He's been used to bring the gospel to uh, the Gentiles. He's that little rock upon which Christ is going to build his church. And so now he's brought the gospel to the Jews, the Samaritans, and to the Gentiles, right? But it's just the start. It's just the start. Now, we go back and we find out what happened 
that brought the impetus for this. Notice with me, if you would, Acts 7.58 says, And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They're talking about Stephen. And the witness laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down, cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this into their charge. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Wow. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem at this time? I mean, these are tough times. They have gone from getting a couple of lashes on the back for their beliefs from the spiritual leaders of the day being arrested and held overnight to now having a member of the Christian community killed legally according to Jewish law. Basically, they've called him a blasphemer because they've cast him out and they've stoned him with stones. Okay? Wow. That's tough. Why did God let that happen? Do you remember Acts 1.8? In Acts 1.8, Jesus said, Ye shall be witnesses unto me. Where? Jerusalem, in all, Judea, in, Samaria, and then, uttermost parts of the earth. We don't know, and the commentators are not in agreement about how much time has lapsed since Acts 2 and Acts 7. But most of them agree that there's probably been several years that have passed. This isn't a matter of days. Sometimes I feel that we read the narration and we kind of go, wow, things were just one right after the other after the other. Maybe this is a few days after the events of Acts chapter 2. It appears that several years, some say that maybe five to seven years has passed. That seems like a lot to me. I tend to think maybe a couple of years, okay? But if these are years, what have the believers been doing with the gospel ever since Jesus said, you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth? They have been enjoying the relative ease of the ministry in Jerusalem almost exclusively. Almost exclusively. Notice chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was consenting unto his death, of Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of what? Judea and Samaria. Can I posit to you tonight that if we disobey Christ's command to make disciples, he can compel us to go? I couldn't do that. We... This is the United States of America. Yeah, the greatest, one of the greatest standing armies on the face of the earth. Nobody's going to come in here and tell us what to do. And take my guns from my cold, dead hands, right? I'll defend my rights. Hmm. Your arm is too short to box with God. And if we continue to disregard the command to make disciples he can compel us to do so if I understand this text correctly that's exactly what he did in the first century he had told them where to go and they couldn't figure out when and he said let me show you how about right now right now how many of you have kids raise your hands how many times have you said, I want you to do this? And they said, oh, I don't want to. Do it right now. 
And Jesus had to tell his followers, now. And they were scattered. They were scattered. Now, going back to Acts chapter 11, even though I believe the Lord can compel us if we are disobedient, I also believe that he is a gracious God. Notice if with me verse 19. They went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean, and Antioch is an interesting city. In Acts chapter 13, Antioch is going to be the center of evangelism, worldwide evangelism, to the Gentiles. So this is an important text because it's giving us the why Antioch became a center of worldwide evangelism. Now, if I understand this correctly, once again, I'm trying to bring this huge uh, ball of information down so where we can understand it, is that today, Jesus wants to do in our generation the exact same thing he did in the first century church. And what is that? He wants to raise up a generation that glorifies him and that fulfills his great commission. Is that all right? Anybody here believe that? Okay. If that's what he wants to do, how did he do it then? And what could be the consequences of that? I believe the consequences would be Acts chapter 13. Fairview Baptist Church would not just have a vision for sending missionaries to Argentina and Africa and Europe and Eurasia and Asia. They would have a vision to send missionaries across the road and down the street and across the way and reseed America with Baptist churches that we need desperately today. And instead of writing a check and saving our conscience by saying, here, somebody else go in my place, we would take up the banner of the cross and we would say, it is my responsibility as a follower of Jesus Christ to make followers of Jesus Christ. And if you have not reproduced yourself spiritually at least one time, can I challenge you tonight and say, please put aside your busyness and dedicate yourself to your master's call. Be a follower, a true follower. And a true follower is somebody that takes the example of Jesus Christ and lives it in such a way that they can, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, say, you want to know what Jesus looks like? Then be a follower of me as I am of Christ. Where are the men and women today who can stand and look someone in the eye and say, you want to know what Jesus looked like in the flesh? I know you've never seen him. Then all you need to do is look at my life. That's what he was like. Whoa. Now we recognize how much work we have to do. I'm not saying that this is easy. In fact, I'm saying that this is so hard that without the grace of God, this would be an impossible task. But guess what? Just like in the first century church, today we have the grace of God at our disposition. Notice, if you would, with me, verse 20. He says, and some of them were men of Cyprus, Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. This blows my mind. They are fleeing persecution in Jerusalem. Why? Because they've been speaking about Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but when somebody threatens my life, 
I really don't run around going, hey, I'm one of those followers of Jesus right here. That's just not the, what, I, what comes to my mind. And if we look at the text, it appears that they got to Antioch and said, hey, this whole following Jesus thing, it's awesome. You ought to try it. That's exposing themselves to a little bit of ridicule and possible persecution. These men are not named. And I believe that's on purpose. Because at the end of the day, if you're looking for a role in the local church where they praise you and they build a statue and maybe put a plaque up after you are gone to remember all the good deeds that you did, I believe you might have the wrong motives. But if we can follow these men's example, guess what? They didn't get their names in the scripture, but what they did lived on well after they passed off the scene. And that's called generational Christianity. What they believed was passed on to another generation, which passed it on to another generation. And you and I are now beneficiaries of what they believed all that many years ago. Look with me at verse 21, because he says, And the hand of the Lord was with them. That's the one thing that encourages me to keep going in Argentina when tough, times get tough. The hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord is with us. Who can be against us? Oh, this is hard, Pastor. I don't like this. I mean, people are meddling in my life and my affairs because they're asking me how I'm doing. And they're not satisfied with, I'm fine. Okay, great. Now tell me how you're really doing because I saw how you spoke to your wife as you were coming in the doors. And that's not Christian. Who are you to talk to me like that? You know it takes a relationship to be able to talk to somebody at that level. And when we are in a culture of disciple making and one person is leading another person into greater Christ-likeness, we have the authority to go to them and say, what's going on? No, 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 I'm not satisfied with that answer. You need to tell me what's really going on. Because we're supposed to be growing in Christ-likeness and that is not Christ-likeness. And I love you. And I want to see you grow in Christ. How can I help you? Don't bother me. Fine, brother. I'm here for you whenever you need me. But please stop calling yourself a Christian. Because Christians are those that follow Christ, obey his word. And if I'm here offering help to you and you don't want it, you cannot be his disciple. Because 1 John says that if we do not obey him, we cannot be his disciple. Verse 23, when he came, well, I'm sorry, verse 22, then tidings of these things came to the church, ears of the church, which at Jerusalem is sent forth Barnabas. Wish we had time to develop the character of Barnabas even more, give you a little backstory. Hopefully you understand a little bit. Barnabas is a great guy. He's just a, a, a good guy, serving in the local church, sees a need, goes and sells a piece of property, gives the money, puts it at the disciples' feet. He's given a nickname, son of consolation, is what the word Barnabas actually means. And now this guy is helping out so much in the church that when it comes time to figure out what's going on in Antioch, not because they wanted to censor the work in Antioch. Hey, this is unlicensed church activity. No, they wanted to see if this was the hand of God or not. And so who do they send? They send Barnabas. Now, notice verse 23 who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad, exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Our mission statement can be summarized this way, and this is not original with me. This is another Christian author has summed it up this way. Look where God is working and join him there. I can illustrate you this tremendously. 
When we first stood at, at Fairview Baptist Church, obviously not this building, the old building, and uh, it was a wonderful conference to this day. Our kids talk about that conference. You know why? We had left the world's worst missions conference in northern Florida. And I am not kidding. You cannot have a worse story than the story that we had experienced in North Florida. It was that bad. We ran from there. You need details, talk to me later. Anyway, and we came to Fairview, limped in. Oh, man. We were early on in the deputation process, and we were thinking, oh, I hope it's not all going to be like this. This is tough. And you folks just loved on us and loved on our family in a very, very needy time. And it was a wonderful conference. We thank the Lord that we were able to stand before the church and share our vision. We want to go to Argentina and win Argentina for Christ. Now, we were a little young and a little inexperienced and a little naive. And so we were standing up here saying, we're going to win Argentina to Christ. On our second furlough, we went back to the churches, or our first furlough, I mean, second, we we're getting ready for our second term. And we get, get back to the States, we're like, okay, the Lord's identified Pilar. We're going to win Pilar for Christ. We went from Argentina to Pilar because, hey, now we've got a little perspective, and, you know, Argentina's kind of big. And, and so we're, we'll, just, we'll just stick to Pilar, okay? Uh, and, and with the, the years, now today, I just say, I hope I can win Jose to Christ. You know, Jose lives in front of me. He's my neighbor. Um, he's pretty well-to-do. He owns a, a, a timber co company. And, uh, wow, what a great guy. Just unsaved. And, and he's I, I, in Satakil. Satakil lives five doors down. He's a pilot for Lon Airlines. And, man, and, oh, if I could just win those two guys to the Lord, they're my friends. If I could win them to the Lord, that'd be enough. That'd be great, right? Why? Because we had this huge idea of what we were going to be doing, and God had to reduce that down to reality for us. Now we just want to relationally work with people. But as we were identifying Pilar, and we go, wow, there's no church in Pilar. We need to go and start a church in Pilar. God's going to use us, maybe, and hopefully, and oh man, there's, there's nothing, there's a dearth, they need a church. We didn't know that there was a family there that had been praying for three years that God would send somebody to start a church in that city. That man and his wife today are now filling in for us, and he believes the Lord's called him into the pastor. What I've discovered all these years later is that God had been at work in Pilar long before the Greenwoods got there. And now, what we want to do in successive church planning endeavors is just look for where God is working and join him. Because that's exactly what verse 23 says. When he came and saw, what did he see? He saw what was going on in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And when he saw that, he said, I want to be involved in that. He didn't rush back to Jerusalem and say, yep, God's doing a great work there. I don't know what we should do. Let's form a committee and see if we can get somebody that will be willing to go and serve. And no, he said, I'm here. They sent me. You know, I'll just stay here. And he began to serve. And notice, if you would, it says that he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. He literally takes the living example of Jesus Christ that was passed down to the apostles that had now been passed down to Barnabas. And Barnabas gets to Antioch and says, oh, you want to see what Jesus looked like? Well, he's ascended into heaven. But if you want to know what he looked like, just look at me. Just look at me. 
He began to live Christ before their eyes. How do I know that to be a fact? Verse 24. In the middle of this narration, we begin to speak specifically about one individual. It says, he was a good man. Why is there a character study on the man Barnabas in the middle of a narration? Look, he was a good man full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Because this is the key to establishing a culture of disciple-making in any ministry. Someone who will put the example of who Christ is so that all the rest can follow it. And they can begin to build layer upon layer of those that are close disciples who then will pour their lives into even more disciples who will pour their lives into even more disciples until every one of the members of the church is being cared for. And the pastor is no longer looked at as a superman who has the ability to fly around between all of your houses and care for your personal needs every single week. He can't do it. I couldn't do it with even a smaller church than this. And now with a culture of disciple making, I can sit back and watch Daniel minister to Benjamin. And Daniel isn't even a member of the church yet. And Benjamin isn't a member of the church. And I go, but they're going to be. They're working toward that. But how do I know that they're not teaching error? Because Cesar is teaching Daniel, Daniel, who's teaching Benjamin. And I'm teaching Cesar. And now all of these individuals are being cared for. Why? Because we're working together. But somebody has to put the example. Somebody has to live like a Christian good man, full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. You know what faith is here? It's vision. Because faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. The evidence. Who would have ever believed that you folks would be meeting in a facility like this? Did anybody have that kind of vision? And then God just burned your building down and said, there you go. There's a little bit of uh, funds so that you can start looking. And then you found this. And that's just a minutia of what God wants to do in and through you because at the end of the day, this building could burn down too. He could take it away from you. But he loves you. And what he will never take away from you is his spirit. He will be with you. And he wants to encourage you. And he wants you to encourage one another. And guess what? This idea of having a culture of disciple-making local church is so hard that when you start, there's going to be anger and misunderstanding and all kinds of people getting upset at one another. And then eventually we're going to get over ourselves and stop being so selfish. And when the transition comes and people stop being selfish and saying, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, and begin to say, Oh, he needs two. Oh, I can meet that need. And I can meet that need. And I can meet that need. That's called maturity. And when we begin to mature past gimme, 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 to I'm going to give and give and give and give and give, God is honored and 
glorified. And look what happens. It says here in verse 24, much people, what was what? Say it with me. Added unto the Lord. Now, we like to do things backwards, right? Because that's just our nature. We like to do things backwards. We like the glory before we like the suffering. We, we want to be like God, so we eat the fruit instead of living like God and earning a place at his right hand. And so we, from the very beginning, we've just done things backwards. And so sometimes we want to add a lot of people to the church, and then we want to be godly. Can I posit to you tonight that that is not a biblical model? That if we are godly, much people will be added to the church? You know why? Because true Christianity is attractive. It's so attractive that when you start living like Jesus Christ, other people look at you and go, what in the world? I've been looking for that all my life. I've gone from church to church to church and never seen what you guys have here. I need that. But that's going to take some growth in godliness. Because without that growth, we're never, ever going to see personal growth. We're never going to see others added to. Now, I do not have any more time, and we didn't even get close to finishing this passage. But I hope that you can see that God has something for the church that maybe we've just, just been missing just a little bit. Maybe, maybe a couple of little changes. And now comes the hard part. Because at some point, the question that has to be asked, are you one of those people that desires to see a culture of disciple-making overtake your church? How can we begin, Pastor? You can begin just like they did in Antioch. You find that man that God has anointed to be the leader of the church, and you begin to follow his example. Yeah, but he's got flaws. He's not. Perfect. Come over to my house, I'll tell you all about it. I don't want to hear it. I'm flawed and imperfect. And but for the grace of God, for his mercies that are renewed every day, I'd be consumed by his wrath. And that man is not perfect, but he has, God has brought him to you so that you could follow his example. And as he reflects Christ, you begin to reflect Christ just like it. Whoa. You're telling me I'm supposed to be like Pastor Brian? Yes. Was that hard? May have been hard, but let's just, re let's, let's just review. Are we supposed to follow the biblical example that God has placed before us? Yes or no? Yes. Who is the biblical example that God has placed in this church? Pastor Brian. And who else? Pastor Don. Wow. What an incredible opportunity to follow a man who's had years of faithful service to the Lord. Yeah, but he's not perfect either. No, he's not. So don't follow the imperfections. Be followers of me as I am of Christ, said Paul. So discard the imperfections and begin to model their leadership, their faith their Holy Spirit-empoweredness and the good that is in them. And guess what? Your church is going to change. Your church is going to change so much that it's going to become attractive to other people. 
God's going to do a great thing in Decatur, Alabama. He's going to raise up another generation for his name. You going to win everybody? No. No generation has ever been able to win everybody. But some generations have been able to win multitudes. It's high time that this generation catches a vision for what God wants to do now and not wait any longer. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'd like to ask you this evening, is there anybody here that would say, Pastor, I've just been waiting, waiting for the Lord to return, waiting for somebody to do something, waiting for something magical to happen in my life. And now I recognize that this is a process. This is going to take a lot of work, but I recognize that it's worth it. With God's help, this is what I want to do. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ that makes followers of Jesus Christ. Anybody that here this evening would say, that is my testimony tonight. That is how the Lord has spoken to me through his word this evening. Anyone that would raise their hand and say, this is what I want to do. Amen. God bless you. May God genuinely bless you. This is not going to be an easy task. But it is a God-filled task. And it's worth it.